Today's All Rise podcast is made possible in part by Joseph Krauske, attorney at law based in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster, and, and it's a great pleasure to work alongside Diane on this podcast. Today, we look back 30 years ago at one of the most notorious murder cases in Boston history. It involved Charles Stewart, a Boston first store manager who shot and killed his pregnant wife on a darkened street in the city in 1989. And he blamed it on a fictitious African-American assailant inflaming racial tensions in the city. Today on All Rise, Diane and I welcome Joe Sharkey, investigative journalist and author. He wrote the definitive book on the subject called Deadly Greed, the riveting true story of the Stewart murder case, which rocked Boston and shocked the nation. Court's in session. Here's Diane. This is Diane Godfrey, and we have a special guest today. We have author Joe Sharkey, and we're going to be discussing the Chuck Stewart case, which is an infamous murder case that took place in Boston. And although it didn't happen yesterday, it happened quite a while ago, it still is one of the most notorious Boston crimes that took place. Welcome, Mr. Sharkey. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Diane. Right out of the gate, I have to tell you, when I asked you to come on, I obtained a copy of your book, Deadly Greed. And I have literally... I was just in the waiting room, and Jordan, my co-host, walked. I have three pages left, and I just got it a couple days ago. So does that mean we don't know the ending? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I must say, I really love your writing style, and I, this was fascinating. And I would implore anyone that has any interest at all in this case to get this book. And I'm not just saying that; I mean it. I mean I enjoyed it so much. It was a page turner, even though I knew the story. But I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, I have a question, right? I have to get this out of the way. And please forgive Mm -hmm. me if it's not appropriate, but I can't help myself. When I was researching this, I noticed that you survived a plane crash, a mid-air jet crash with another jet. And I am flabbergasted and I am so intrigued by it. I just wanted to take one minute and ask you, OMG. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was in 2006. I was on a, um, uh, I was actually doing a a story, uh, a column on a private jet delivery, a a company that bought a private jet in uh, San Paulo, Brazil, and they said to me, "Why don't we're we're flying back home on our new jet? Why don't you come with us?" And I said, "Well, why not?" Uh, to add to the atmosphere of the story, and midway across the Amazon, we suddenly collided at thirty-five thousand feet with a commercial uh, Brazilian airliner that had one hundred fifty-four people on board. It went down into the jungle. Um, with all people, all 154 killed. We uh, we survived the collision with a you know a broken wing and a uh, a, a horizontal hat, uh, uh, stabilizer that was shot, and we managed to fly for about 30 minutes until we uh, our pilot spotted a landing strip in the middle of, of the the Amazon. Now this was the deepest, literally the deepest, darkest Amazon. 
you know, the place where the explorers famously got lost in, in times past. So, uh, you know, we put down, we were arrested at this uh, uh, kind of strange secret Brazilian military base in the middle of the, uh, the rainforest. And uh, we spent a couple of uh, rough days but it was a horrible, horrible a- accident. And um, I got uh, involved deeply in it because I, I, I began reporting as hard as I could on the causes of the accident. You'd be wondering, well, what in the world would cause a mo- two modern airplanes to collide, basically, almost head on at 35,000 feet? And the answer, as uh, I, I and others determined, was that the uh, Brazilian air traffic control was uh, a mess at the time and uh, that it was responsible for inadvertently placing those two airplanes on a collision course. And that that ignited, uh, to make a long story short, that ignited a tremendous amount of um, uh, controversy in Brazil and kind of an international incident that I inadvertently sort of found myself in the middle of not wanting to be there. it ultimately uh, uh, got resolved with uh, various uh, committee reports, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was a harrowing time for, you know, not me particularly, but for the survivor, the uh, families of the survivors of this disaster. And of course, for the American pilots who were flying the, uh, the jet that I was on, who got blamed, uh, uh, wrongly blamed for causing, uh, for causing the accident, uh, they didn't. It was, you know, it was air traffic control. It was a like like any awful accident. It was a series of things, but the basic problem was air traffic control. Anyway, that was the uh, the upshot of that, and I'm I'm glad to uh, to no longer be involved in it. It was an awful awful time. Well, you know, I realize this is a true crime podcast, and we're here to talk about the Chuck Stewart case. But I yeah. had to ask you because I am fairly certain never in my life again will I ever speak to someone who survived a mid-air collision yeah. and to boot walked from it. You have all your appendage. I'm just, I'm, it's, and then you were r- wrongly kind of accused of I don't know. It's just cr- a crazy story. Well, and I thought it was noteworthy. I was just going to add, Joe, um, and I don't know the answer. You can tell us. Have you written about this? Was that a form of catharsis for you? Well, because it I, had to be I wrote about it on, uh, immediately on, after I got back. I was held in custody for a couple of days, as was everybody else on, on the, yeah. uh, the, pl- the plane. I wrote about it on the front page of the New York Times, where I was a columnist at the Times. And then I later wrote a, a longer article in the London Times of... Uh, in the London Times Sunday Magazine, uh, and I wrote uh, a lot on on a personal blog about it, which mm. uh, got me involved in this tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, flap with the Brazilian government that uh, ultimately led to my being sued for the the crime and literally a crime in Brazil of causing insult to the honor of uh, of Brazil. Oh. So it was just an awful, awful period of time that uh, I was sort of like some schmo that got inadvertently dragged into this thing. But uh, once I got into it, I kept uh, I kept reporting and that caused a lot of trouble. The pilots, the American pilots were 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 also were were found guilty and uh, were held held for three months. I spent a lot of effort working on the uh, the case, trying to get them released from Brazil. 
Uh, and to this day, the this has not been settled. There, there's still their conviction is uh, it, it was upheld in Brazil, and the question is what you know uh, whether there was going to there would be a sentence. This is now 2006, you know, but whether there'd be a sentence of community service. It was it was a horrible miscarriage of justice, in my opinion. So I guess it does try go into true crime then. It's pertinent to what we talk about. Yeah, on this. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But um, this one more yeah. thing I just wanted to ask you before we turn to the Chuck Stewart case is just to recap, nobody was hurt or died on the plane you were on, but the other no. plane, everyone perished, 150-odd people. But how many people were on your jet? Seven, including the two pilots. Mm. Well, what an experience. Talk wow. about yeah, one I one I just assume not to have uh, had, frankly. <laughs> but it's it's just amazing. But you did say that you were a columnist for sixteen. I think it was sixteen years when I read. You know, when I looked up your credentials, and I read over the weekend some of your past columns, and the theme was business travel, and I. No, it's subjective, but I personally love, 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 love the way you write. And it's it's unbelievable to me that I just, I'm just intrigued by it. So I do see that you wrote, I think, maybe a half a dozen true crime books. And what gets me is, could something be further from business travel than true crime? I'm just wondering, like, what does, how you came into that scene? Well, I'm an old, I'm an old newspaper man. I, I, I came up uh, through Philadelphia. Uh, and at the times, you know, weirdly enough, I, I was writing a column, uh, a, a Metro column called Jersey on the Times, which I really liked doing. And they came to me after a couple of years, after three years and said, uh, you know, we were looking for a business travel columnist. And I, I said, well, you know, good luck. And they said, how about if you do it? And I said, I don't know anything about business travel. And they said, perfect. Uh, you won't bring any baggage to this to the to the column so that's how i got involved in business travel um i came to i came to really uh, enjoy it because i I, be, I became deeply interested in the culture of business travel not the uh you know not the the nuts and bolts of airline schedules and fares etc but the the culture of a you know of a, of a, a phenomenon that was the, in which people were you know I, I was fascinated to see how many people you go to an airport and you used to see these these, these poor drones dragging their suitcases and they're all business travelers and they're out, you know, five or six days out of every week. And I, I became sort of awfully uh, attuned to that way, to their way of life. So that that's sort of what carried me through 16 years of that. I understand. My cousin does that. He's out of the house five days a week and it's, it's yeah. really tough. He's got two teenage kids now, but it's rough. It's not, it's, the grass is always greener. It's not as glamorous as one would think. No, it truly is not. And even though you might be staying in very nice hotels and uh, eating at, at decent restaurants, and not at all to you know to be um, uh, flip about that, but it's it's a rough way of life for those sure you know people who are flying a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, or more miles, real miles a year. It's just a, a tough life. That that life has changed a lot since the pandemic. I, I'm not certain uh if it's going to recover to what it used to be i don't think it will frankly well but i'm out of it anyway you know well um i just had this question and you could 
choose to write about anything, any murder, but you chose a Boston murder. And as I say, I mean, it's not, we're known for like the Boston Strangler and the Chuck Stewart case. I mean, there's a few more out there, but, but have you ever, like your affiliation with Boston, have you ever lived here? Did you go to college here? Like what made you decide on Boston? Because you had such intimate details and I'm a a die in the wool um, Bostonian and you, you nailed it. Like, I felt like you were one of us. Thank you. So uh, it must have been an that's ordinary... Not the, that's not the way the Boston Globe felt after the book came out. But, really? Well, that's how but, I feel you. as a Bostonian. But did uh, you ever live here or go to school here? No. Or? You know, I, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, which is a city that is somewhat... It's bigger, but it's somewhat similar in, in makeup and attitude to Boston. So I kind of got Boston, if you know what I mean. I got yeah. the Boston attitude. Um, and I had nothing against Boston, but when I... Uh, you know, I'd heard about the uh, the uh, the Chuck Stewart case after it happened because there was so much media commotion in Boston about crime and about the the way the the, the Chuck Stewart case played into presumptions about crime in in Boston. Uh, you know, I was uh, I had been a you know a police reporter in Philadelphia earlier in my career, so I was tuned to that. And then when it kind of blew up, when you know when it became very clear when Chuck Stewart jumped off the bridge that mm-hmm. uh, that story had been just a dreadful uh, mistake in, the, in terms of the Boston police and the Boston media. Uh, I, I jumped into that and my main interest uh, was not, I mean, obviously the particulars of the crime and, and Chuck Stewart's uh, kind of diabolical way of, uh, of seizing the moment in, in Boston with his awful uh, plot to kill his wife. It was the it was the media uh, environment that interested me a lot, uh, and and uh, that's sort of what drew me to it. Um, mm. the, uh, the you know the Boston media for in the late eighties. Uh, not to lecture you on something that, that I'm sure you know, but the crack epidemic had epidemic had uh, had, had burst forth and. Boston, Boston, which was considered one of the most safe, safe big cities in the country, but crack uh, changed the equation a, a lot in terms of uh, dramatic crimes, and there were a lot of gang activities, and the Boston media, where it was then the Herald and the, of course the Globe, mm-hmm. were in kind of a uh, you know a half baked circulation war. You know the the Globe obviously was bestriding the. Uh, the media environment and the Herald was this sort of skinny upstart, but it became a very, very competitive story. The, the crime story in, in, uh, in black Boston, black neighborhoods of Boston. Uh, and it, it, it got, it seemed to me that it got out of control in, in terms of the breathless dramatization of crime. And it was my opinion that, and, and others as well, that, that Chuck Stewart, who was already, uh, in a state of mind where he was thinking about, you know, not to be too crude about it, but getting rid of his wife, uh, that he, he kind of seized it. The media had set the stage, it seems to me, and Chuck Stewart was able to seize the, uh, uh, to seize that stage and, to, you know, to, uh, at least for a while, pull off what really was a half-baked scheme that, uh, uh, that actually, uh, in that environment, actually worked for him until... Uh, you know, until um, the truth closed in, uh, the the Stewart case was there was so much investment in belief that 
that Chuck Stewart and his and his and his tragically uh, murdered wife were the perfect suburban couple, and this was the an example of the you know, the evils of of, of, of the city uh, jumping in and, and 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 ruining their lives, and of course putting killing her. Uh, that that story, the uh, it was a false story, but it, it just had legs, and it just kept and. Uh, in, in that environment, there were more and more uh, media people who jumped in on it. Now, on the other hand, what, once you get a large culture invested in this kind of story, which I think is what happened in Boston, it makes it very difficult for the people who don't buy it to push back. And I encountered a lot of those people who over, the, what was it, three months that the, the you know, the Chuck story was a, uh, uh, was, was promulgated in the media. A lot of people who, who really were like, nah, there's something fishy here. I don't buy it. There were nurses in the hospital when Chuck was recuperating from his, his own gunshot wound who were like, something wrong here. This guy, it, 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 it doesn't smell right. There were a lot of reason to push on the, the Chuck Stewart case, but there was a tremendous a disincentive to doing that. So that, that also interested me. Well, at this point, can we fill in the listeners if they're not familiar with the case? Um, from what I remember, it was in October of 89, 1989. Yeah, right. Chuck Stewart, he was a native of Revere, Massachusetts, which is a city that's just north of Boston, right. near Logan Airport. And he had a job in, I think it's, how do you pronounce it, Cacus? First? The fur yeah. company, yeah, Cacus Fur. Yeah. On Newberry mm-hmm. Street, which is a fancy street. At the time, mm-hmm. that was the fanciest street. You know, it had yeah. like Dior and Chanel yeah. and all that kind of. Still kinda. is. Yeah. But I mean, we have competition now with Copley Place and right, different places. Right. But um, he worked there and he did well. He did very well, but he was never going to go any higher. And he made good money. And he had worked in a restaurant on Revere Beach called The Driftwood, which I do not believe is there anymore. Right. He met, he got his eye on Carol. What was her name? Demady? Mm-hmm. And he ultimately married her. She became a tax lawyer, I believe. So, you know, yep. reading this book, reading this book, I thought right from the get go they were mismatched. I did. That was yeah. just my opinion. I mean, Car- Carol's friends thought that as well, because um, Carol was, by all accounts, and I mean all accounts, a sweet, smart, uh, slightly ambitious, but kind of a homebody. But she was a girl that everybody liked Carol. I, I yes. never ran into anybody who had anything negative to say about her. That was a mismatch. And Carol's friends thought that from the beginning. They were, uh, there was something, some of them, you know, told me there was something from the beginning, a little bit hanky about, about Chuck. He was very smooth. He was good looking um, to a certain extent. But mm. he just didn't have the right moves for Carol. And, but she was, was smitten with the guy and uh, hopelessly in love with him and uh, thought that uh, she was living a life that would be happy ever after. Uh, two questions for me, Joe. Yeah. Uh, how long had they been married? And if memory serves, she was pregnant at the time of the murder. Am I right? Yeah. Key to it. Yeah, she was, uh, I think, close to nine months pregnant. Now, that that's kind of key in, in two senses. Uh, one is that... Uh, uh, Chuck being the, uh, by, by uh, some accounts, the good husband that he was, accompanied her to birthing classes at the hospital. Brigham. In, uh, uh, Brigham, in, in, uh, near, near the, the scene of the crime. Right. Uh, 
And that night, uh, now Chuck had already put this plot into, into place, but that night after a birthing class, uh, he and he was driving Carol home and he, he took a, 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 a detour through, um, you know, the neighborhood where, where it happened. Uh, and she had reason to be worried about that because it wasn't the normal way home. Uh, he pulled over on a dark street and I, I went back there and that was a very dark street where there was almost no, uh, no chance of a passerby. And uh, according to the, the, the prelaid plan, he shot her uh, and uh, uh, he had his brother, Matthew, uh, who Matthew apparently, Matthew claimed he'd never, he didn't know the full extent of the plan. He had Matthew uh, come and meet him at the, 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 uh, the, the scene of the crime and uh, uh, carry off a satchel, which Matthew thought contained uh, money, uh, but it didn't. It, um, it contained the gun, actually. Now, the, the key to this is that Chuck, after he, after he shot his wife and himself accidentally, he shot himself, but I, in my opinion now, he accidentally m- made a mistake and shot himself a lot more seriously yes. than uh, than he meant to. Correct. Uh, you know, it, nobody should nobody deliberately shoots themselves as badly as Chucky shot himself. Uh, 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 it was it, to me, it was obviously inadvertent. Uh, there, there being so much attention to crime in that in that neighborhood that there were media. There already was a media focus. Uh, Chuck calls the cops, and this is all recorded, and uh, it gives them this, you know, this horrifying story of how he was, uh, he and his wife were, were uh, waylaid by a black assailant who, uh, uh, who robbed them and shot the wife, and, uh, the, and and there happened to be a media crew in the neighborhood at the same time they were working on this already, you know, pre. Uh, pre-existing story about crime, the crime uh, threat in, in Mission Hill. And they, they hurried to the scene, and they were the ones who, who uh, got the photograph of Chuck in the car with his dying wife beside him. And that photograph was on the front pages of uh, the newspapers and, of course, all over the news at night, actually, uh, because newspapers still had early, you know, had late editions. And in the news, and, and that 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 sort of ignited the story of of the of, of poor Chuck the uh, the noble husband protecting his wife uh, and mowed down by the uh, the forces of evil in uh, you know in in the black area of of, uh, of, of Mission Hill. So the story as, was a lie, you know. Yeah. So just to um, see if I have it correctly, from my understanding. They're married. I think they were married about four years, your book said. She was expecting a baby. She was a successful lawyer. He worked at the Furrier, and he was very successful. But he wanted more, and he always had a dream of owning a restaurant. And he heavily, heavily took out insurance policies on his wife. So it was a money thing. He didn't want to be married anymore. And there was no question that he at certain times prior to this whole crime had confronted a few people saying I want you to help me get rid of my wife they thought he was kidding or they were shocked so he was wearing thousand dollar you know 
he'd only get suits from Louis of Boston and have have thousand dollar sweaters. And he was they made a lot of money, the two of them, but they were living beyond their means. Yeah. And he wanted no part of his wife or having a baby. So he concocted this crazy scheme. And he said to his brother, his younger brother, Matthew, I'm going to give you $10,000 if you meet me at this, I'll tell you the location, and just take what I give you and dispose of it. And I guess they might have, as you said, had one dry run. And then the Mm. night of the crime, after he shot his wife, he went to shoot himself, but inadvertently shot himself, and he really injured himself. He really messed up his intestines and had multiple surgeries and was hospitalized for quite a while. Do I have that right so far? Yeah, yeah, you do, yeah. Okay, so and, you know, and the 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 key is that uh, in an instance like that, it's not unheard of for the uh, for the murderer to wound himself superficially, and clearly that's what Chuck meant to do, and he he didn't he didn't do that right. He uh, he I, really messed himself up badly. I don't think he bargained for the fact that it turned the city of Boston upside down, and I remember yeah. that because I'm a Bostonian. And all of a sudden, it was, oh, my goodness, this black man shot this nice white couple coming out of their birthing class. They got in their vehicle. They were, you know, somebody jumped in the car. And, you know, the people in that neighborhood said that doesn't hang together. Yeah. The crackheads did, would, yeah. wouldn't have jumped in the vehicle. And there was— Take the way it happens, yeah. Also, as an outsider looking in, I share the opinion that I did read in the book that you touched upon— wouldn't that assailant have shot the husband first? Maybe he misfired. Who knows? The wife might have lunged in front. But it just didn't hang together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it truly didn't. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people, not a lot, but there were people who thought that at the time, obviously, because, you know, reporters are smart. Cops are smart. Nurses and doctors are smart. Uh, but once this story, the story, as you say, the story, it, it took off immediately, the, the theme of a uh, uh, nice suburban white couple deeply in love uh, mowed down by black assailant in Mission Hill. Uh, that theme, once it was, once it was placed, in, in a, and it was immediate, uh, it was awfully hard to push back against the, uh, the heroic Chuck, the Chuck Stewart heroism story. Uh, yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, Diane, there were people he talked to uh, before, the, before this went down who, who he said, I want to, he basically was upfront about, uh, I want to get rid of my wife, you know, ha ha ha, joking. But those people, along with, you know, nurses in the hospital and, and some reporters were just, they couldn't push back against the, the overwhelming media story that was, uh, that, was, that was in place that the cops were fanning. And, you know, I, I can understand sort of why it happened given the, the environment. But pushing back against that was extremely difficult. And uh, only later did it you know, become clear that there were X number of people who basically were not buying this yarn at all. Attorney Joseph Krauske is based in the Boston, Massachusetts area and serves all of New England. Joe has 43 years of experience handling major personal injury and criminal cases with hands-on attention given to every client. He also specializes in handling cases of OUI, which is operating under the influence, and has experience with many serious and important superior and district court cases. To contact attorney Joe Krauske, call 508-587-3701. Again, that's 
3701. Email him at krauskylaw.com. That's K-R-O-W-S-K-I-L-A-W.com. It's legal help when you need it. Krauskylaw.com. Boston has a long storied past, and I'm not proud of it, being a Bostonian, but there's always been this black-white thing, and it's a shame because it's a great city. But I think it made it worse, and South Boston is an area of Boston. Now it's getting gentrified, but back at the time of this murder, it was all white, and Judge Garrity decided he was going to— in, try this integration of busing. So kids that went to school in Southie had to suddenly bought a school bus and yeah. go to the black section of... The whole thing was a mess. And I had it. friends from Southie, and they still to this day will refer to it as the War of 74. Mm. Yeah. So it was a disaster, and it didn't very, work. It was a very raw time, though. I mean, it was extremely raw, and... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, of course, was national news, and it was easy to peg Boston through that. But that was an awfully raw time. Yeah. Um, and in Southie, it, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it persists to this day. I have a, a quick question here uh, before we talk about who was actually picked up uh, for the crime, because that's a huge thing, and I'll let Diane handle it. Uh, there was another woman uh, somewhere along the line uh, we know about with Chuck Stewart, can you talk a little bit about the other woman, the girlfriend, and what role she might have had prior and certainly post the murder? Uh, one of the difficulties in true crime reporting is that it's reporting and you are you are really responsible for being factual. So uh, this uh, girl, uh, she was a young woman in her 20s. She was very pretty. It's my opinion uh, that she was like just a, a an innocent bystander, and this Chuck decided that he, that she was the one. She was she was uh, uh, she was elegant. She was she was blonde. She was pretty. That was Chuck wanted to uh, you know spend his life with with her. It it's everything I could find out is that she didn't she wasn't part of that. She was maybe she she might have been a bit flirtatious with with him. He was you know he was a charming guy on on the outside. Uh, and I just think she got this poor girl got dragged into this. And, and uh, I don't think she had any inkling that, that uh, Chuck was the kind of guy, number one, uh, uh, who would be capable of this. And number two, she, I don't think she was she was uh, involved with him. I just think that was somebody that he flirted with her and he thought that she was in love with him, I guess. But I, I just think that that uh, that poor woman was was dragged into this and. Uh, I, I kind of understood that, and she didn't want to, of course, didn't want to talk uh, at all. And uh, everything I could find out was that this was a perfectly innocent uh, uh, encounter with her. I think it was the workplace environment where they met. Yes. Uh, and yes. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I, I, I just think that it was it was a shame that she got dragged into this. I do too, and I I think yeah. it. She was just I, my spin on it was she went. She was a university i think she went to brown and she had a boyfriend she worked with him with chuck on newberry street at the furrier and i think it was platonic i think she got a kick out of him liked him was friends but had never had any intention i don't think anything ever went on between them no i don't know friends 
And well, you know how you know Chuck was a charming guy. He he considered himself a, a quite a wag, and uh, in a workplace environment, you know it, that uh, that kind of a relationship can uh, can seem different to different people. I think Chuck Chuck had a, had an outlook on life that didn't comport with the facts. I think. Well, and, I think if he had it his way. And she went for him. He would have gone with her, but it just yeah. wasn't going to happen. It was. It just wasn't that kind of a, a situation. Yeah, and he had a wife. You know, don't forget. Yeah, an expectant <laughs> wife. Let's fast forward to who they pinned this murder on. Who was it? Uh, what happened was right after this murder occurred. Now there, there's it's major hysteria in Boston, right? I mean, it's the media are beating the drums, and the the cops are under great pressure, and they had already been. Uh, in that neighbor, in Mission, in Mission Hill, sort of uh, tossing kids, uh, you know, as gang members, uh, re- responding to this alarm over the gang activity. So kids in, you know, black kids in, in, in this neighborhood were kind of used to the cops hassling them. And sometimes, with, you know, sometimes they were hassling criminals. It's not that, uh, that there was uh, total innocence going on here. But the cops started tossing kids uh, very aggressively in Mission Hill. And, and uh, you know, when you reconstruct this, you can see what what happened. Like one kid gets hauled in with his friends and that kid has been known to brag about his uh, his uh, his crime connections. And in this case, there was a kid who bragged about his uncle, Willie, who was a, you know, a, a small time criminal who'd had, I think, some jail time and you know, push came to shove, and and before you know it, Willie Brown, Willie Bennett is is hauled in. He's he looks he looks good. He uh, he fits the description of that Chuck had given of a, you know, and sort of a a, a black male in a in a in a running in a running suit. That's all you know, they a, had. Dis- a gaunt black description male in a running suit. Hello. Ten ten thousand people fit that description, but yeah. you know, Chuck was smart enough to give a generic description. And, you know, and Willie gets dragged into this thing. And uh, uh, before you know it, we've got we've got our murderer. And, uh, you know, I, I did spend some time with with Willie's uh, people. And it was it was kind of, a, you know, Willie was not a choir boy by any means, but it was kind of like awful what happened to him and to his family. Uh, because he was wrongfully uh, accused and, you know, almost convicted of this of this uh, this murder. Um you know, one of the one of the side tragedies of uh, of this case is uh, people like like Willie Brown. Not as I say, he was not a choir boy. He was definitely a you know a guy who'd been involved in some stuff he shouldn't have been involved in. But he didn't murder that. He didn't murder Carol Stewart. No, he had no connection. But none none whatsoever. Just to um, how this whole thing changed, like the stories going along that he was the su- suspect. Chuck yeah. Stewart never made good on the ten grand he was supposed to give his brother. His ah. brother did his half of the bargain and met him at that location and took Carol, his wife's bag that had, I guess, wedding rings in it. He went with gun. a friend, guns, and had and the a, gun. Yeah, yeah, and he disposed of the gun somewhere back in Revere near a train truss or a train. I don't know. Yeah. Abandoned train tracks, but he he retained the the wedding ring or the diamond. And he ultimately yeah. showed it to the authorities. So when Matthew realized that his brother had done this, because he claimed he didn't know anything except for he was supposed to show up at this location, 
Right. He ended up going to a lawyer and he informed his siblings and ultimately the story came out that it was his brother and it was, you know, this crazy scheme for money and the insurance. So yep. Chuck Stewart ended up going down to Braintree, Mass and spending the night in a hotel and the next morning he drove to the Tobin Bridge and for people that are not familiar, it's a huge bridge that connects the city of Boston to the North Shore, like Chelsea. It got Route 1 North. And he jumped to his death. Yep. Joe, Joe I, I just want to jump in here because uh, yep. Diane and I were talking about where we were when this happened. We all remember it if we're old oh, enough. Oh, yes. And, and I distinctly remember the Newman Flanagan. He was the DA at the time. Newman Flanagan right. tie, necktie, which he was famous for. But, yeah. uh, but his announcement that that had happened, and it literally – it, it was as uh, as I- impressive in terms of where your eyeballs were as the Kennedy assassination, it seemed. It was, everybody yes. was glued to the radio or the TV and couldn't believe the outcome, couldn't believe the finale. To Bostonians, it was like what happened with O.J. Simpson out yeah. in California. It was huge. Yeah. Can you comment a bit further on what happened the day that it all fell apart for Chuck Stewart? Well, well I mean— you know, don't forget Newman was very invested in this story until until it it, it flew apart on him. Uh, so he he had to get out there and, and do some soft shoe dancing to uh, try to get ahead of the story. Um, everybody, I mean, Ray Flynn, the mayor, everybody who was invested in this story had egg on their faces. And, uh, you know, they try, obviously tried to make the best of it, like, oh, well, Justice has been justice has been done because, you know, Chuck was smart enough to know if you jump off the Tobin Bridge, your your chances of survival are not very good. I mean, you've been to the Tobin Bridge. That's a long jump. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it all, you know, it all came it all came crashing down. And when it did, you know, it turned out there were a lot of people who knew better, who really shouldn't uh, have been that totally invested in, in this story. Um you know Chuck's family. There were you know there were people. Uh, the brother was pushing back a bit. Everybody was nervous. Everybody there, there was a tremendous incentive to just keep your mouth shut and uh, let's see how this plays out. Uh, uh, you know, and in the meantime, Chuck was uh, increasingly worried that he was <laughs> that he was about to be uh, fingered in this thing. So it, it was yeah, just as you say. I mean, it was a dramatic moment. Because all of a sudden, this big story blows up, boom, and he jumps he jumps off the bridge, and then it all comes out, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I can understand if you're a Bostonian, that that is a uh, a moment you that's yeah. riveted in your in your memory. Well, I was working at Suffolk Superior Court in Boston, and who comes in but Matthew Stewart? And everyone was a buzz, like Matthew Stewart's in the building. Matthew Stewart, Matthew Stewart. <laughs> So we all went and looked at him. I mean, there's, there's windows on all these courtroom doors, and we're all gawking at him. I don't know why, but we were. Everyone just wanted to get a glimpse of him. I can't remember if he was indicted. And I think there was some crazy old law on the books that he can't be, he couldn't be prosecuted because he was helping his bride. I forget what it was. Yeah, there was some, you're right. There was some, I don't remember what it was. It's in the book, but I, yes, I forgot. Yes, yes. So, yeah, he had, he had reason to think he was, uh, was going to get off lightly. But I don't and, think you know, he did. He well go to prison. I can't know. remember. Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, he did. I mean, his his story, and it, it, it kind of 
figures uh, is that he, he didn't know that uh, when he when he met Chuck at the preordained place that Carol was was dead in the car. Uh, that was his story. There's no there, there's no other information to uh, to conflict with that except your common sense, you know. But uh, who knows? I mean, common sense was not was not uh, fully at work in this situation. Mm-hmm. But Ju- yeah, I mean, Matt, what was he doing in court? When you saw him, he was sitting on a back bench waiting for his name to be called. He had some sort of business there pertaining to this crime, but I don't even remember what ah. it was. I didn't walk into the courtroom. I wish I'd talked to you at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you would have had a great, great source of, of information. Her, her stuff is amazing. Joe, I just have one more question, and then yes. I know Diane wants to wrap it up with her question, but. It, there was such an outcry when we found out that uh, Willie Bennett was was pegged for something because he was black and because Stewart lied and all that. Um, and there was the discussion at the time that we'll always remember the Stewart case and we'll always be careful about prejudging. Obviously, memories are short. Uh, mm-hmm. The lessons learned from the case, uh, if they could be carried over into uh, the present day, would be what, in your estimation? Well, I'm a newspaper man, and, you know, I'm an old uh, editor. I was an old reporter in Philadelphia and an editor uh, at both the big papers in Philadelphia at the time, in the 70s. And to me, this, this, was, this was largely a media story. Um, and the lesson is, is to just take a breath and, yeah. and, uh, and ask, ask, do, ask skeptical questions, which I don't think if they were they were being asked obviously in the boston media but they weren't they weren't being they weren't being there was no receptiveness toward that yeah, uh, touche. It, you know i think we've learned that lesson i hope yeah touche diane well yeah. when carol was murdered when she was shot by chuck they when they got to the hospital she died but they saved her baby and her baby yeah. was lived for a short time and then died I just wanted to put that out there that, you know, so you wouldn't be wondering what happened with that. But yeah. another interesting thing, this is a small thing, but I it just sticks in my head. Carol, when she met Chuck when they were very young and they were working at the Driftwood, her father didn't like Chuck and didn't think he was suitable for her. And he didn't really like the idea they were going to be married. And, you know, his instinct was right because look how, yeah. how, it ha- how it ended up. Yeah. So that's how tragic. Often, yeah. How often do we see that where, the, you know, the father, there's something about this guy the father does not like. And, you know, it was interesting to me, Diane, um, not to hammer on Boston, but to, uh, the, uh, the, the strain of, uh, of bigotry that was associated with this case that, of course, uh, Carol's father was Italian-American and, and uh, Chuck was an Irish-American. Uh, kid um, that and you'll still find this to this day there's some people who believe that the father Carol's father had something to do with with uh, uh, with killing Chuck that the mafia was involved and it was like once you get into that area you just want to pull your hair out and scream <laughs> but there are people this day who believe there's some dark story about uh, about Chuck's death that is not known you know Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the podcast today. And to recap, the name of the book is Deadly Greed by Joe Sharkey, S-H-A-R-K-E-Y, The Riveting True Story of the Stewart Murder Case. And can I just ask you quickly, can you just give me a rundown of your other books? 
Because you have other true crime uh, books. I wrote, a, I wrote a book called Above Suspicion about a uh, FBI agent who, a rookie FBI agent who went to eastern Kentucky and got involved with an informant who, um, a, a young woman, a uh, coal miner's daughter, who uh, he ended up killing uh, when she threatened to expose their affair. And that book is recently a, a, a movie uh, that got released in May starring Amelia Clark of uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, yes, yes. I'm familiar with the title. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And Amelia, I mean, I... I, I it, above suspicion. The fact that I wrote the book notwithstanding, Amelia just knocks this story out of the park, and I re- highly recommend the movie Above Above Suspicion, it's called. She uh, uh, she just redefines that, that role as far as I'm concerned. Um, mm. And I wrote another uh, true crime book about a guy in New Jersey, uh, sort of a uh, an outwardly religious, uh, very conservative man who up and murdered his uh, his his three teenage kids, his wife and his mother, Ooh. in one day in uh, 1971. That's called death sentence. And uh, you know, it sounds like I'm deeply uh, interested in, in in horrible murders, but I'm I'm actually not. I sort of you, you sound like such a <laughs> such a gentle soul. You, we like you a lot, Joe, and we don't think oh, for a minute we don't think for a minute that he's uh, macabre doing. No, no. <laughs> but um, well, well, I just want to thank you again. And if you just Google Joe Sharkey, I'm sure all your your books, your true crime books, will come up. And I say uh, that because there's an interest. People that listen to this podcast absolutely. love true crime. So this has been a treat for us, and it was nice well, to finally to speak with you. Thanks so. to the both of you. I very much enjoyed it. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.